open in front of you. It'll be useful as we work through it. It is a nightmare jumping in in the middle of any book. There are very few books other than kind of reference books like the Encyclopedia Britannica type things that make any sense jumping in in the middle. And so we've kind of got our work cut out starting a series in Romans chapter 8. Because if you know how numbers work, 1 to 7 come previous to 8. So we have got some hard work, but Romans 8 forces us to look back in Romans with the opening word. Therefore. Now that doesn't just include what he's just said, but most people agree that that refers back to everything Paul has said so far in Romans. So technically we should read all of Romans 1 to 7. But actually I think Romans 8, 1 to 4, in some ways summarize everything that Paul has said so far. In Romans 1 to 3 particularly, what Paul has laid out is God's case against humanity. He has laid out that God is the righteous judge of all people and that all people as unrighteous are therefore under judgment. It's God's case against humanity. And at the end of that section, you're not left in the kind of uncertainty of this Oscar Pistorius trial. Did he do it? Did he not? Or the Dave Lewis Travis trial. Is he guilty? Is he not? It is a closed case. There are no appeals. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the language is fallen short, accountable to God, without excuse. Therefore, all are condemned. He says their condemnation, that is all people's condemnation, is just. That word means condemnation. They are sentenced to judgment. Case closed. Um, In fact, let's bring up that next bit you just flashed up. This is Romans 8, 1 to 4, minus the work of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And this, in many ways, sums up the early chapters of Romans. This is case closed. So you could read, therefore, there is only condemnation for those who are in Adam, because through Adam, the law of sin and death enslaved me. For the law was powerless in that it was weakened by my sinful nature, and so I'm condemned. Because the righteous requirement of the law will never be fully met in me, who lives according to the sinful nature. And so you get to the end of Romans, that section in Romans 3, and you're just exhausted, you're depressed, you're dark, you're despairing. Because every door is closed. All are sent. All are condemned. It's a little bit like, the the emotional level is a little bit like that song in Les Mis. Um, What's it called again? Who am I? Me and Sarah disagree on Les Mis. She hates it, I love it, she's wrong, I'm right. But in that song, Jean Valjean, if you've not seen it, stick with me. He, he is in this position where he is just shut in and he says, If I speak, I am condemned. If I stay silent, I am damned. It's a real depressing moment as he is shut in in condemnation. Two, four, six, oh, one. It's just this darkness in the song. And Romans 1 to 3 is a little bit like that. If I'm religious, I am condemned. If I'm irreligious, I am condemned. 
If I'm addicted to sex, drugs and rock and roll, I'm condemned. If I'm addicted to Sunday school, I'm condemned. Because all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. 24601. But it's into that dungeon and into that darkness and amid those closed doors that the work of God the Father, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit arrive. So that therefore, rather than there is only condemnation, therefore, there is now no condemnation. For Paul, what God has done has achieved and accomplished and affected not just the possibility of condemnation being removed, but no condemnation. So that people are moved from condemned no condemnation. From condemned to righteous. From condemned to justified. From counted as guilty to credited as completely righteous. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. For who? Well, what does it say? Romans 8 verse 1, therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ. That is one of Paul's kind of parrot phrases in his letters. In Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus. He says all the time. The phrase or something similar comes up over 160 times in his 13 letters. Now the big boys with the big brains who write the big books like to call this doctrine union with Christ. And these guys will say things like, there is nothing more central or basic than the doctrine of union with Christ. If you're a Christian, you've got to get this, and you will love this. You are in Christ. Now, we've had an example of this this week. We'll use Scottish football because Scottish rugby didn't go so well. In the Scottish football match this week, you could have gone into a pub the next day, Thursday night, and said to a guy, oh, how did Scotland get on last night? And he could say to you, we won. And you could look at the guy and go, Were you playing? You're 62. You're 32 stone. If you saw a pigskin, you'd eat it. You wouldn't kick it. We won? What is that? We? I know we're desperate for players, but really? We won? What is he doing there? He knows it because he's in Scotland, because he's Scottish. Whatever these 11 blokes on the field do, in one sense, he does. Whatever they achieve, he achieves. Whatever they do is done for him. We won. When they win, he wins. When they suck, he sucks. So when we wake up this morning as Scotsmen after yesterday, we were slightly depressed, slightly angry at French people. Why? Because we're incorporated within these 15 rugby players in the pitch. We are united with them. What happens to them happens to us. Now that in part is the doctrine of union with Christ. That is what it means to be in Christ. What he does, he does for you. What he achieves, he achieves for you. What happens to him, happens to you. But it's not by being born in a particular nation or being from a particular family, but it is whether you have faith in Christ. What unites us to him? It is whether you believe in him or not. So there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Let me read you one of those big boys with the big brains who writes the big books. He says, What Christ did for us was done as the head of a team 
of which we are a part. He did it on our behalf for us, and God reckons it to our account as a result of our being united through faith with him as the head of our team. You see it? When he wins, we win. So as Romans 8 verse 1 says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So all the unrighteousness in me that deserves condemnation is suffered by him, dealt with by him as he is dying on a cross. He is condemned. And as I am united with him, he is condemned for me in my place. Romans 5 verse 1 says exactly the same thing from the positive angle. Flick back to 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. All the righteousness that brings us peace with God is given us as we are in Christ. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. None for those who are in Christ. And so we're going to sing at the end of our service. No condemnation. Now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my in him, see that? My living head. And clothed in righteousness divine. That's union with Christ. No condemnation now I dread. Now some of us need to hear this. Isn't it true? Some of us as Christians still wrestle and walk under the guilt of maybe sins that we committed before we came to Christ. Maybe sins that we've committed in this past week. And we sense this weight of, you know, that Jean Valjean, I'm condemned. What does Paul say? If you're in Christ, how much condemnation is over your head? Not some. None. No condemnation. You need to hear that if you're in Christ. None. We won. He died, we died. He lives, we live. We are in Christ. Can I ask you tonight, is that you? Can you say, yeah, do you know what? We won. I'm in Christ. And therefore, there is no condemnation for me. Because otherwise we're left with Romans 8, 1 to 4 without the Trinity. There is only condemnation for those who are still in Adam. That is, we're not only sinners because of what we do, but because of our kin. Because we are one with the rest of humanity, all of whom have fallen short. Are you in Christ? If you are, there is no condemnation. Now we need to remember that Romans, as doctrinal as it is, as heavy as it is, as dense as it is, is written by a pastor. And so he's not just writing theology for the sake of theology, he's writing theology for the sake of you. And isn't it true that we hear these words and there are a few things that come to mind and we think, all right, I love that, I believe that, but actually how I feel is quite different. I want to talk about two things that I think Paul is engaging with in his audience, in his readers, as he writes the rest of Romans 8. Here's the first thing that he says, he speaks to people who say, do you know what, I feel enslaved. 
okay, Paul, I know, I get this. There's no condemnation. But you know what? It still feels as though I'm enslaved to sin. You know, I, I've put my faith in Christ and I know there's no condemnation and my sin is the very reason I ran to Jesus. But I've still got that feeling of, I get off when it comes to sin. Have you been there? You feel that? Uh, Paul vocalized it in chapter 7. We read it, verse 14, chapter 7. There's a lot of debate about 7. Is this a Christian? Is it a non-Christian? Is it Israel? Is it the person without the spirits? We've not got time to go into that. I, th- I think this is the internal battle that wages within every Christian. And here is Paul. He says, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, I do. You've been there? I've been there this week. I have no condemnation, but I feel enslaved. What would Paul say to you? What does he write to these Roman Christians? Well, first he would say, hang on, let's go back to Romans 8 verse 1. Do you know, in that moment where you feel enslaved, there is now no condemnation. That now, in some senses, refers even to that moment where you feel most enslaved. I feel enslaved. There is now, in that moment, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But there is, there is more in the gospel than that. Look at verse 2. Romans 8 verse 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. What does Paul want you to know if you are feeling enslaved to your sin? He wants you to know this. You have been set free by the Spirit. You have been set free. Now we sang earlier, be to sin the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. Now there is a sense which, in this verse, Paul is referring to the fact that Jesus, by the Spirit, has freed you from the penalty of the law. We stand before God's law, and it shows us our sin, and it shows us that we are worthy of death. And Jesus in his cross has dealt with the penalty of that. He bore the penalty that you might be free. But you know, there is more in the gospel than just that. It's a double cure. Be to sin, the double cure, cleanse me from its guilt and power. And so there is in this verse also the truth that the Spirit has set you free from the power of sin. Come with me to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36. So on page 800... And 68. Paul here is harking back to one of the promises made in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Page 868. Verse 24. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries, bring you back to your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from your impurities, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow all my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. 
Now, do you see what's going on here? Not only if you have put your faith in Christ, are you in Christ, what is also true? God has put his spirit within you. The law of the spirit of life, the power, the authority of God's spirit is now in you. So that where there was only an enslaving power, there is now a liberating spirit. Where there was only death, there is now life. He has set you free from the law of sin and death. He has put a new power in you that is able to help you walk, as Ezekiel says, move you to keep God's laws and decrees. Now, you could say, hang on, hang on. You haven't answered my question. I feel enslaved. Ah, that thing. I still feel that. Does this mean that I haven't been set free? No, it's, we have a misunderstanding of what freedom feels like. Think with me for a moment how, how your life was before you became a Christian. So that your mind, your body, and soul pretty much did whatever it wanted to do. There was no inner war. There was no battle. If you wanted to lust, you lusted. If you wanted to get drunk, you got drunk. If you wanted to lie, you lied. If you wanted to be materialistic, you indulged yourself. There was no battle in that sense. You did what you want. But actually, you were enslaved. You couldn't do anything else. What is true now that you are in Christ? Well, into that body, mind, and soul has come God's powerful spirit. Now, we still live, as Paul said in chapter 7, in this body of death, and we will do until the day we meet Jesus. But into this body of death, this sinful nature, this flesh, has come God's Spirit. And so what happens? There is immediately conflict. Because my old sinful nature wants to lie, but the Spirit wants to move me towards telling the truth. A war is waging. My old sinful self wants to lust, but the Spirit wants to lead me towards purity. War wages. I want to pursue materialism, but the Spirit wants to move me to store up treasure in heaven. The war ensues. But actually, that war is freedom. Because I now, I'm not only, when I was, before I was a Christian, all I could do was sin. Whereas now I do have a Spirit that is moving me to fight against that and to pursue what he wants me to, how he wants me to live. So what does freedom feel like? Well, while we live in this body, freedom is a freedom to fight, a freedom to walk into war, a freedom to choose. So when we say, do you know what, I feel enslaved, that is actually a sign that God's spirit is within you because there is now a new desire and a new power that is pushing you to do what you never would have wanted to desire to do before. You see, this is a freedom to fight, a freedom to walk into war. You're no longer a prisoner of war, unable to do anything, but you're now a foot soldier who can engage in the battle. That is true freedom. And actually, if tonight you're feeling that in slavery to your old sin, you're feeling the battle, I want to encourage you. It's a wonderful sign that the Spirit is at work in your life. And he longs you to look at the cross and say, okay, here is a place where Jesus has won my freedom. 
and place the Spirit in my heart. And so I want to fight. Now, there's a second feeling that comes that I think Paul engages with. Not only I feel enslaved, but secondly, I feel weak. Maybe you've been here as well. Paul says in chapter 7, verse 18, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. You've been there? Here in the eye of temptation, you know what's right? Just melt. (laughs) Too weak. I listened to a fascinating discussion on Five Live on Friday night. Actually, it wasn't that fascinating. It was on um, tennis. And um, whether women's tennis should move to play five sets or they should remain with three sets. And they interviewed this old champion who'd won lots of women's titles. And she said, you know what, we tried this 20-odd years ago and I played a five-set match. And I went two sets down. I still could have won the game. I could have won 3-2. But you know what, at the end of the second set, my body said, you won't last five sets. And so she said, I gave up. I lost the third set 6-0 because I knew I didn't have the ability, the power, the energy to fight. And with this in my head, I thought, doesn't that often feel like when you're in the heat of temptation? It feels like sin can go further than me. It feels like I can't go five sets. I feel weak. I know what I want to do, but I don't have the ability, the desire, the, the, I don't have the power to live it out. Well, Paul again would say, hang on, let's go back to Romans 8 verse 1. In that now, there is still no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But there is more to the gospel than that. And this is what he would say to you. He would say, verses 3 and 4, sin has been condemned by God. Sin has been condemned by God. Let's read verses 3 and 4. For what the law was powerless to do and it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. Now wonderfully, again in those verses, we see God has done everything necessary to remove the penalty of your sin. Jesus enters into the weakness of sinful flesh, the likeness of sinful flesh. Why? To be a sin offering. And literally it just says there, for sin. You'll never understand Jesus unless you realize that is why he came, for sin. He died for my sin. The penalty removed. But in these verses, there's more than that. Because not only has he dealt with the penalty, God has done everything necessary to break the power of sin. And so the logic goes something like this. The law plus my sinful nature is powerless. So weak am I that actually we even render God's law powerless to help us. The law plus our sinful nature is powerless. Jesus, in the likeness of sinful man, is able to break the power of sin. God did by condemning sin in sinful man. He condemned sin. Interesting idea. But the very thing that would condemn me that would make me feel weak, he condemns. The very thing that brings me to my knees, he brings to its knees. The very thing that feels like it's going to make an end of me, 
he makes an end of. The very thing that seems all-powerful, he breaks its power. He condemns sin. It's broken. To use that language, Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. We often think, don't we, in the eye of temptation, we think that sin is all-powerful. It's omnipotent. It's not. It's been condemned. We think sin can go five steps. It can't. It's been defeated. It's been triumphed over. It's been mortally injured by Jesus on his cross. He's dealt with not only the penalty, but the power. It's a little bit like, not very much, but a little bit like, do you remember Wacky Races and Dick Dastardly? What does Dick Dastardly do to make sure he wins the race? Well, he always makes sure that his car is as powerful as it can be, but he always does everything he can to break the power of the cars he's up against. It's a good strategy. Not only taking care of your own, but making sure the opponents are kind of hamstrung. Cars don't have hamstrings, but we're mixing metaphors. But um, what has God done? He has not only given you a power within you in his spirit that brings strength even in weakness, but he has mortally injured the enemy who is against you. Sin has been condemned. It will not have the final word. It is not all-powerful. And so you can enter that fight even in weakness, knowing not only do I have the power of the Spirit, but the power of sin has been condemned. Now, we're almost done. But Paul would say, hang on, let me set up the application for next week. Because I want to quickly show you the purpose behind all this. And spot the purpose clause in verse 4. Why has God done this? Important words, in order that. Why has God, why has God done this? Why has he condemned sin? Why has he given you his spirit? Why are you in Christ? In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Now this is interesting. Why has the Spirit powerfully set you free from the law? Actually, it is so that he might empower you to keep the law. He not only has the power to set you free, he has the power to sanctify you. To uh, help you keep the righteous requirements of the law. The same thought is that of verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 29. Why has he predestined you? To conform you to the likeness of his son. What's the likeness of his son? The one who perfectly fulfilled the law. So if you're in Christ, he wants you to walk like Christ. And if you're in the Spirit, he wants you to walk in step with the Spirit. When you're in Christ, there's a way to live. And the Spirit is the one who will lead you in that. There's, there's a wonderful realness to it. He's not asking you to run. He's not asking you to cartwheel. He's just asking you to walk. And in the enslavery that we sometimes feel, in the weakness that we know, that's good, isn't it? Just walk. That is the word. The NIV can, uh, says live. It's actually walk. You're going to walk with him. There is a way to walk as a Christian. I don't know if you saw this news article in the week. I think it was a bit of fun and games, but a major general, Cowan, uh, wrote to his army officers, dismayed at the way they were living. Did anyone see this? Uh, he banned sandwiches from the canteen. This is why. 
Quite a few officers in the divisional mess seem to be under the impression that they can eat their food with their hands. The practice of serving rolls and sandwiches in the mess is to stop. A gentleman or lady always uses a knife and fork. His point is when you're in the army, there's a right way and a wrong way to live. Uh, he goes on, the fork always goes in the left hand, the knife in the right. Holding either like a pen is unacceptable, as are stabbing techniques. The knife and fork should remain in the bottom third of the plate and never be laid down in the top half. He goes on, successful marriage. He, it's not just limited to dining rules. I recently went to a Burns night, spoiled only by the curious decision to sit husbands next to their wives. The secret of a successful marriage is never to sit next to your spouse at dinner, except when dining alone at home. It displays a marked degree of insecurity. But his point is, when you're in the army, there is a right and a wrong way to live. Now, I think it was fun and games. But the point is, when you're in Christ, when the Spirit is working powerfully in you, there is a way that God expects you to walk. And that is the walking into the freedom of fighting the battle to live in step with the Spirit, not the old sinful nature. And Romans 8 is going to say, okay, how do we walk? We're learning to walk as we walk through Romans 8. I want to finish by uh, reading a quote from Jim Packer, a great writer, uh, but a helpful place to end. He says, think of the Christian's personal life. This will come up on the screen, actually. We'll just start at the second paragraph. Think of the Christian's personal life as a house with different aspects. Romans 7 depicts the cold, shadowed side that faces away from the sun. Romans 8 shows us the warm side where the sunshine is seen and felt. We only get out of Romans 7 into Romans 8 in the sense that after letting the law speak to us about ourselves, we listen afresh to the gospel. But both aspects of experience, the pain of imperfection and of joy, of assurance, hope and spiritual progress should be ours constantly, consciously and conjointly. We do and must live so to speak, in both chapters together, every day of our lives. There is, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Shall we stand? And as we stand, we'll pray, and then we're going to sing uh, the great hymn.